Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank and you for listening and enjoy the show. show. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and um, your faithful host, Josh Bertram, unfortunately can't be here due to some technical difficulties, but um, we're continuing our series during Pride Month, and today we have with us Dr. Ann Pham, who is an adolescent medicine specialist who's trained at some of the top children's hospitals across the country. She's published numerous articles spanning topics like the impact of news on transgender and gender non-conforming youth, disordered eating among transgendered youth, and fertility for gender diverse youth. Dr. Pham also joined the adolescent medicine team at Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU in 2021. She's an expert, compassionate physician with a special focus on LGBTQ plus care, and her practice includes primary care services, gender affirming care, reproductive health care, and the treatment of STIs. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Pham. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> you're, you're, you're very welcome. And, uh, you know, so we, we're, we're, we're having you on to discuss gender affirming care. But, you know, first, first, I want to I want to give a, a, a quick shout out to the Children's Hospital of Richmond. So, um, so my my oldest son actually gets gets care there. Uh, oh, nice. for for uh, a situation he's got in and I, and I gotta tell you those people are amazing oh yeah <laughs> well it's very nice to hear you know we're a children's hospital so we're very like children's hospitals in general are very different beasts than like mm -hmm. your like adult I'm sure you probably see a vast difference. Mm -hmm. so I'm glad I'm glad uh, you're enjoying the care there yeah yeah so I, I get most of my care at the VA um, so comparing VA care mm -hmm. to like children's hospital it's oh, like yeah. I don't know like getting prison medical treatment versus <laughs> like i don't know it, anyways so um yeah. so to, to to start to start us off with like so you work in gender affirming care um how how does one um get into like that that field of study and or you know why why did you decide to kind of make this sort of an, an a focus area for you yeah, so for me, you know, I love working with teenagers, and teenagers are already kind of a patient population that a lot of people avoid. Just you know, they have their they have their feelings, and you know, within the adolescent population, I just found that one of the most marginalized and underserved and underrepresented patient population um, are transgender and gender nonconforming youth, and. I became interested in it. And then once I started seeing patients, it just felt amazing. These, they're just, if you meet trans youth, they're just so fun to work with. 
but just have so many things going against them. And so I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the patient population. They're, they're a great group of people. That's, that's really cool. And, uh, and how long have you kind of been working, um, sort of in, you know, within this, this particular sector of people? Yeah. So about five years, um, okay. I've been doing this. Got it. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're working kind of in this field, like, you know, it's, there's no drama or anything associated with it. Right. I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say it's kind of, um, perspective. There's always drama working with <laughs> adolescent patients, of course, <laughs> but yeah, it is unfortunately a contentious topic. Um, and even when I tell people like outside, like on a personal level, what I do, oftentimes people take a beat because they're not sure if they want to ask me about it because mm-hmm. unfortunately it is a controversial topic. <laughs> so it is, it is interesting. Practicing in this field. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's one of the reasons that we actually wanted to have you on the show because um, like we, we want to be able to ask you kind of all the questions that maybe people may be thinking about when they think about gender affirming care. I mean, I think there's a lot of like misconceptions about it. Um, and I, and I'm really looking forward to just having you educate me and, and our audience about a lot of the different stuff out there. Um, and you know, so, so I guess like what, what's, um, what's the, the process needed like to have a doctor consider performing like gender affirming care? Like kind of what's the trigger or like kind of, you know, how, how does that process start? That's a really good question. And it, it totally varies, you know, um, and I have have a skewed perspective because I only see, you know, patients in the medical kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. sphere, but there's like obviously youth at school and things like that who don't ever see a physician. So I do see kind of a skewed population, but um, it really varies. There are, we see patients who are like eight years old and they told their parents, you know, I I don't feel like I'm a boy, I'm a girl. And so the parents really want to know what are their options for their child. So they'll come to see me. Or there's also adolescents who are like 19 years old who have depression and anxiety and they've been to the ER multiple times because of self-harm. And then finally somebody asks, what, what is your gender identity? And that opens up the conversation. So it really varies how people come to see me. But in general, we see really anybody whose gender identity is different from their sex assigned at birth. Um, and even though we provide medicines, it doesn't mean that all of our patients go on medicines. We're really just there to provide information and help families figure out what they want to do and what they want to pursue. Got it. So, so if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, that there, the, the, the point in which somebody would, would want to receive care may vary and or fluctuate kind of depending on the person, but like, is there, you know, is there like a a normal distribution of, you know, in a, in a child's life where you see like, you know, the, 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 the most uh, type of people coming, you know, coming to you? Yes. So you're totally right. There is a very wide spectrum in terms of when people come to us in terms of age in relation to when they have socially transitioned, which means like changing their names, pronouns, how they dress. Uh, Sometimes people come to see us before they've done that. Sometimes they'll come to see us afterwards. But in general, oftentimes there is a pattern and that's during adolescence, specifically during puberty. Because for a lot of youth, you know, once they start growing like breast or chest tissue or their voice changes, it's like a, a concrete, like, 
you know, not a reminder, but a concrete way of them realizing, oh, I'm definitely in a body that I don't want to be in. Because before puberty, before those changes, you know, there's maybe not as much dysphoria or distress. So oftentimes we do see more individuals around that time of puberty or after puberty. Mm, that's interesting. And and I and I, I, I can't help but wonder probably something that a lot of people wonder. And, and that's like, is, is this like a new phenomenon or... You know, like, or is the 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 need for gender affirming care really the same as it always been? It's just that now it's kind of more more public. Like, yeah. what are your thoughts? That is a really great question. So, a lot of people, especially because of legislation that's coming out that's targeting trans youth, a lot of people think that gender affirming care, social affirmation, different gender identities that are not binaries like non-binary, like this is all new, but it's actually not. And <laughs> we have been providing this care. So, I've been doing this for five years, but people have been providing this care for many, 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 many many years <laughs> no, um, and it's just that there's a a lot of attention on it because of legislation that's that's coming out but also there's much more representation you know there's now you see non-binary trans people in the media and also in uh, like political spheres as well like in virginia and mm. so you know it's now people are saying like oh okay when you're like a young person you and you don't understand what feelings you have, and then you see somebody and you're like, oh, maybe I should Google this. And then you kind of see all the blogs and you're like, oh, this is what I'm feeling. And so I think also we trans people, trans youth have been there, but we are seeing more people because of improved access to care, but also more, you know, visual representation of gender diverse people out there. So I think there's just a lot, it's a culmination of a lot of things, but that was a lot, very long-winded answer to yes, people have been here for many, for all of time that have been trans individuals. <laughs> no, you, you know, that, that that's really interesting. I mean, just, just because sort of like the sphere of, I don't know, like friends that I have, I mean, I, I don't have, um, like very many trans friends, um, more gay, lesbian, but, um, so like, you know, the, the more I hear about trans stuff, like it, it's easy for me just to kind of think like, what the heck, you know, like what's, what's, what's going on? Is there an explanation for it? And, and this is probably going to be a really bad example. Like I, I think of it sort of like CRT, you know, like CRT has been around forever, you know, <laughs> like we hear a lot about it now because it's sort of like the popular thing to talk about, you know, but, um, but it's, it's been around and, and you said that, you know, so you've been here or you've been in this field for five years. Um, do, do you happen to have any sort of like historical knowledge about, you know, may, maybe like the evolution of sort of gender affirming care kind of through, through the ages? You know, I am definitely not an expert on that, but I will say that, and, you know, it's, it was originally a lot of individuals doing this care, especially in, in the pediatrics world, a lot of individuals doing this care, but, um, you know, and that was, you know, to meet like the patient population and, you know, people just saying like, oh, okay, there's a need to do this. Like, so on a local level, I need to provide this care. But, you know, the number of like multidisciplinary large clinics are really growing because when individual people, physicians were treating youth, they were saying there's actually a lot of extra needs that need to happen. Like for example, mental health, there's so much stigma against youth. And of course, that stigma and internalized transphobia is going to cause depression and anxiety and self-harm. And so, you know, the, the care that we um, 
have provided has really grown into something that's much more comprehensive to meet the needs of youth. But this medicine, the medications that we've been providing have been going on for a lot of time. If anything, I think just the evolution of it is it's getting better. Um, And that's why it's interesting to see that there's so much legislation against gender affirming care and that it's like, People seem to think that, like, these families are making choices, like, willy-nilly. Um, but yeah. actually, the care that we're providing is much more comprehensive. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess, like, walk me walk me through, you know, kind of what gender-affirming care kind of includes. I mean, yes. you know, most... You know, most people kind of think, okay, maybe it's hormone treatment or puberty mm-hmm. blockers. And, I, and I'd and like to maybe just, you know, unpack some of that later. But, like, you know... I, I'm, if I'm a person, I walk into your office, I, I tell you that, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm in the wrong body. Like, where's the conversation kind of go after that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, my name is Andy and I'm the host of the gospel and justice podcast. The whole goal of this podcast is to ask the question as believers, how do we talk about justice? Well, what is a biblical view of justice? If you're tired of overly simplified arguments about social issues, if you're tired of arguments being driven by political ideologies from the right or left, this is the podcast for you. Each episode is a different interview, like rethinking the death penalty and incarceration. How are politics guiding our views on justice? And what was it like to pastor through 2020. Come join the conversation as we seek a biblical perspective on the Gospel and Justice podcast. Yeah, so um, that's also a really good question because I think people have a really different view of what we do. Um, so, you know, oftentimes the very first visits are really just talking to families about different options and the risks and benefits. So a lot of people think that we, like, are ready to, like, inject all of our patients with testosterone and like put (laughs) estrogen pills in people's mouths. But we're just here to just tell people the risks and benefits and families decide what they want to do. Like there are many individuals who don't want to go on hormones for different reasons, you know? And so there's many different options in terms of how to affirm somebody. And to be honest, a lot of our clinic visits are a lot of the conversations are about the non-medical things. Like, how is school going? Are you getting bullied? Like, how mm. can we protect you at school? Do you have a bathroom that you feel safe using at school? And so, yes, medical options are really important. But as physicians and medical providers, we also spend a lot of time doing non-medical support for our, our youth. But, yes, we do provide options like puberty blockers, um, hormones, later on if they're interested in different types of surgeries, but that's really later on um, mm-hmm. because it's really rare to have surgery less than 18 years old. Got it. Yeah. Cause I, I've, I've heard the argument, like kids should not be allowed to start hormone treatments due to like their maturity level and decision-making um, and, 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 and their, their decisions are irreversible. So okay. like, yes. like what, what, are, what are your, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah. So this is, this is where I think a lot of people have, of incorrect kind of views on what we do. So there's, I always tell my patients that it's very different for a 14 year old who's interested in hormones versus a 30 year old who goes to an adult provider who's interested in hormones. So one of our biggest goals is again, that we want to do things in a really safe way. And for example, I tell my, like if it was a 14 year old patient who's transmasculine, like if you look around you, the 14 year olds in your class don't have like full on beards and a deep voice, you know? And so we wouldn't want that for you either. 
So how we do gender-affirming care in pediatrics is we go low and very slow because, again, we want to meet their age range. And what that means is actually most of the changes are not irreversible. They're actually reversible. And it's not irreversible until they're at, like, higher doses, which you're generally getting at at an older age or with longer amounts of time on um, treatment. And so I think it's really important for people to know that, like, a person doesn't change overnight. It actually takes months for changes to happen, and they're actually reversible. Uh, Puberty blockers are 100% reversible. Hormones, Mm. depending on the dose and the age, a lot of it is uh, reversible. And then surgeries, we don't do – those are obviously irreversible, but we don't do those in less than 18 except for, like, top surgery, transmasculine, which I can go into details. But, again, very, very small percentage of people are having irreversible surgeries before they get to 18. So what are are some of the – like, what are some of the reasons or contributing factors – um, from medical scientific standpoint where somebody might actually not feel like they are, um, you know, in, in the right, in the right body. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to use a ton of really bad examples. So like, like I, I, I joke with a lot of my friends cause my mom, my mom is Vietnamese. She was born in Saigon. My dad is black. Um, when I do my, my like DNA test, it shows that I'm more Asian than I am than I'm black. So I, I like to tell people like, I identify with my Asian heritage because like genetically I'm more Asian, you know, but like what you see is, you know, sort of my skin color and you just naturally assume I'm, you know, African, whatever. So, so like, what's, what's, what's sort of causing, you know, people to kind of feel like they're in the wrong, they're on the wrong body. So we don't know that, you know, um, and that, and I, it's interesting because you are asking a lot of questions that actually parents ask for Mm -hmm. very understandable reasons, right? And um, so these are really good questions. And parents ask me these really good questions. And I also emphasize this because a lot of people think that families are just making decisions like that. But there's Mm -hmm. very really like drawn out conversations that parents have with themselves and their child to figure out what are the next steps. And that is a great question. So, you know, there isn't like a an MRI scan or a blood test that says like, oh, your child is definitely trans. What we can tell you is we know that they're sex assigned at birth. So their sex assigned at birth is generally based off like genitalia. Like if you have a penis, you're a boy, you're assigned male at birth. If you don't have a penis, if you have a vulva, you're assigned female at birth. So we know somebody's sex assigned at birth. And then we know that they're trans because their child is telling you, you know, I'm not a boy, I'm actually a girl. And there's a lot of weight to that, right? Because especially in a world where there's so much stigma against trans people, to have that, to feel that and to feel comfortable enough telling people that, knowing that there's so much stigma against you, for me, that's enough to say, okay, there's something going on, you know, let's support them in whatever way we can in this moment to keep them safe. Mm, that's really great. Yeah. You know, when I was in college, I took this um, um, psychology class and um, I think it was psychology. No, it was like a sex education class. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, the, we, we did this case study where like this, this, um, baby boy was getting like circumcised. The doctor screwed it up. The parents said, you know, I didn't want my child to have like a deformed penis. So they like did a, I, I don't know, like they, I, I'm going, I'm not going to get the science right, but they, they, they turned the boy into a girl. And, uh, um, and then the boy just grew up kind of as a girl, you know, and then when they kind of reached like puberty and these other, like, and the parents never told the, the child. So like, you know, like 
bad parenting, obviously, <laughs> but like, but, but the, this, this child basically like, you know, grew up thinking they were a girl. And then when they hit puberty, they kind of, they kind of figured it out. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm curious if, if, if that ever happens, <laughs> you know, like based on your, based on your experience, you know, like, uh, is, is it like a nature nurture thing? Like, like if, if you are a child of trans parents or if you are a child of, um, you know, like a, a same sex couple, like, does the, does the likelihood of you, you know, wanting to become trans increase? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Yeah, so that's also the question. So, you know, we don't have that kind of research to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we do know, like, in terms of research, and because I think what maybe you're getting at is... If somebody, for example, were to come to my clinic and say, I'm transmasculine or I'm non-binary, and five years from now, is it possible that they could change that gender identity and maybe people could say, like, revert back to the gender identity of their sex assigned at birth? Is that kind of along the question you're asking? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's it's so funny because you're asking a lot of the questions that parents ask me um, when kind of thinking through what they want to do for their child. And so, you know, we don't see that that often. It is possible. And I tell families it's always possible um, that your child may change their mind in terms of what their gender identity is or because of different factors, you know, trauma, things like that. Um, There is always that possibility. Um, But in general, we don't see that that much. And that's why in general, people who start hormones um, are on it for the rest of their life. There's a small percentage who are not on it for the rest of their life, and that's people who are, like, non-binary, and they get enough of the irreversible changes that they want, and they come off. But their gender identity hasn't changed. It's just they're not on hormones for the rest of their life. You know, I tell people it is possible, um, but that's – we still want to think about – so you still want to think about the risks and benefits of – you, your child could be that small percentage where they change their mind, but also there's risks of not doing something at the same time and like safety risks. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So is, is there a difference between like gender and sex? Yes. Yes. Okay. So sex assigned at birth is, is what most of us are think about. It's like whether you have a penis. Okay. So you must be a boy, whether you don't have a penis, you have a vulva, you must be a girl. So mm-hmm. there's sex assigned at birth. And that is basically for the most part fixed. Um, and then there's gender identity, which is different. That's who you identify as. That is the gender that is to you. And for most of us, and that's why we make this assumption for most of us, our sex assigned at birth is the same as our gender identity, mm-hmm. um, right? Cause most of us are cisgender. So we make that assumption when we see that ultrasound and we see that that fetus has a penis, we're already making assumptions like, okay, that, that kid's going to like sports. They're going to be a boy, you know? And so <laughs> we automatically make those assumptions. 
but not everybody's gender identity is the same as the sex assigned at birth. And to make it a little, maybe a little bit more confusing, it's not the same as sexuality. A lot of people think that because mm. you're trans, that must mean you're gay. Like these are all like separate parts of a person's identity. Interesting. Uh, I, you know, I never really thought of it that way. So like, so it's like sex is the, I don't know, like the objective scientific visual like thing that, that you are and gender is it like your state of mind um yeah basically okay yeah and it's really interesting too because we know that actually gender then you can can form as young as two like and not to say that like we should be asking all two years like what's your gender identity but you know because around two three that's when you start having preferences for toys and things that you like and so yeah gender identity is like a totally separate entity than your sex assigned at birth Mm. Yeah. Cause, cause it's, it's so weird. So like my, my oldest, um, when he was born, I mean, he, like we, we homeschool and so he spends a lot of time with his mother and, um, you know, I would come home from work often and like, he's got like fingernail polish on and, you know, he's, he's acting like his mom, you know, <laughs> and, and, and like, and I, I wouldn't get afraid or be weird about it. I'm just like, I didn't like it. I'm sure if the roles were reversed, you know, he would probably be like me. I like, Neither, none of us are sports like fanatics in the family. So I, I'd be really surprised as a boy if he did like sports, you know, but, um, but it just seems like you're just going to naturally pick up sort of the, the, the characteristics, you know, and the personality of the people that you're, you're closer to that, that, that was kind of like my, my earlier question about, you know, if, if you've got like two same sex parents, like if, if you're more prone to, to be gay than, than not. And, you know, it's, it's not really that, that big of an issue, but what I, what I do want to ask you though. Um, so, um, I'm, I'm trying, I, I'm trying not to necessarily weave any sort of politics in our conversation, but I, but I, but I will, I will at least just talk about one particular situation and then kind of get your, get sort of the scientific answer. So recently there is a confirmation hearing for a new Supreme court justice. There was a question that was asked in those, um, in the confirmation hearing where, the the person at, was asked like what what's a woman? Yeah, um, I know exactly. <laughs> and and I and I'm curious like if, if okay, so I'm asking so I'm asking you like like if you were in that position, actually maybe that's probably wrong because that's a wrong setting. Let me just ask you like what what is a woman in, in your uh, in your opinion? See, I, that's so interesting to me because if you are asking me what is what does it mean to be assigned female at birth, which I think is kind of what that person was asking. Um, you know, that's like, okay, based off of your chromosomes, based off of your external genitalia, that is female. For me, a woman is whatever somebody tells me. You know what I mean? It's like, and because what I think is also interesting is my definition of a woman is going to be different from your definition of a woman. And how feminine somebody is, is going to be different from that person's definition of femininity. You know, and so it is, it's, to me, I just respect the person. And I also think like to label somebody it, it to me doesn't matter as much as long as we're respecting that person. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if that person says they're a woman, okay. I don't know. <laughs> it, doesn't harm, it doesn't harm me personally. Got it. <laughs> but, got you it. know, their visualization or their kind of definition of a woman is different from mine. I just yeah, feel like because it it is it is like I mean so so the the confusing part for me is just I remember going to school high school, whenever, you know, they say, okay, XX, female, XY, male, but then I go to college and they're like, well, actually it's not that simple. You know, (laughs) they're like, there's different comp, there's other combinations of chromosomes that, you know, might, 
you know, skew what you consider female, what you consider male. So like, can you, can you talk a little bit more about, about that, you know, so, about yeah, like so the, you- you're going back to, again, sex assigned at birth. And so you're mm-hmm. right. Even within sex assigned at birth, it's not black or white because you can have different chromosomes. So the also the, the example that you were giving before about the person who had the penis. So that is probably somebody who is intersex. So there's mm-hmm. like also a spectrum in terms of sex assigned at birth where there are people who are not chromosomally exactly, not all, not all people are exactly XX or XY. So XX assigned people with XY because... The beauty of this world of diversity is there's actually also diversity in sex aside at birth, where you can have you can have one X and no and and nothing. You can have X X Y. So there's actually diversity in sex assigned at birth, just like there's diversity among gender identities. Oh, interesting. How, it's very how many, complicated. Yeah, like how many how many different genders, I guess, oh, are there? So that is it's like infinite. So there is so many, and you know, and that makes me happy. I know that probably makes a lot of people frustrated to hear that answer, but um, and probably would roll their eyes. But there's just an infinite amount of gender identities, which is, I think, good because it's not fair to put people in boxes like you have to be a male or transmasculine or you have to be a female or transfeminine. You know, for many people, that's just not a label that feels right for them. And so there really is. Like, even I tell myself and trainees, like medical trainees with me, like, you have to have a sense of humility. Like, even if I were to do this for 100 years, there's no way for me to know all the gender identities. And -hmm. also, again, because there's so much diversity, for one person being transmasculine may have a different definition as another person who's transmasculine or non-binary. You know what I mean? Like, it's just there's so much diversity. Like, like, when you say transmasculine, is that that a like a person that was uh, assigned female at birth that like is on hormones or something. I just want so to make not sure necessarily. Get... It's a person who's assigned female at birth and who has a gender identity that's more masculine. So gotcha. that may mean that they use he, him pronouns. That may mean that he's on hormones. He might not be, but for that person, they're ass- uh, assigned female at birth and they just mm-hmm. feel more masculine. Got um, and, yeah. and then, then, so, so not all trans people actually, like have surgery. Like I think right. if I'm, if I'm, actually a majority of people do not, um, right. you know, it's, it's expensive, it's invasive. And it's for some people just not a part of their process. Um, just like not all trans people on hormones, not all people uh, pursue surgery. Got it. So, so you, you, you mentioned um, it's expensive. Like what's, you know, like what, what are, what are the, I don't know, average costs. That's probably not a, not a, a real easy way to, to pose yeah. a question, but <laughs> you know, so. in, in general, um, insurance will cover, for example, like puberty blockers and um, hormones, they'll generally cover it. Oftentimes they will not. Um, and I, it's, there's just so, I, I have used this word a bajillion times, so I apologize, but there's also diversity insurance. So for example, there are religious insurances that will deny and will not include any trans care. And so people have to pay out of pocket. But in general, like, for example, Medicaid just does cover a lot of the costs. And surgeries, too, they will cover the costs. Um, but a lot, oftentimes it's they get a denial, and then that's where I step in, and I say actually the research shows that there's medical benefits, physical and, and emotionally, to surgeries or hormones, whatever the denial is. Um, and we just keep going at it and advocate for the person until insurance will cover at least part of it. Mm, um, wow. No, that that's interesting. So like, so if you're a parent, um, 
what's the best way to kind of navigate conversations, you know, about gender, sexuality with, with your children? And, you know, what are the, I, I don't want to say war warning signs, but like, what are, what are the things we should be looking at, um, you know, within our children to determine, you know, maybe if we should even initiate that, that conversation. I would just say to be open-minded and be willing to listen and not make assumptions. I think that's the biggest thing is not make assumptions, you know, just because your child wants to try on high heels or lipsticks or wants to cut their hair short, hair short, depending on their sex assignment at birth. It doesn't mean that they're trans, you know? So I don't want people to go like in the opposite direction and be like, oh, everybody's <laughs> trans. You know, that's yeah. just like not conforming to gender expectations, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, um, but if your child does say something that, you know, is say something along the lines of, I think there's, I have different feelings inside of me or I'm more direct. Like I'm not a boy. I'm actually a girl to maybe just listen and be mm -hmm. open-minded. And I also tell parents that if your child is sharing those emotions with you to be very thankful, you know, cause that means that they have a comfort level to talk to them about it. Because again, I cannot kind of, emphasize how much stigma there is and for a lot of you that probably don't want to tell anybody because it's scary to be a trans person in this world right now the fact that they're even giving you any information is is really amazing and a testament to the parent that um they're being open but i would just say be open-minded and again to not assume that you know their gender identity because of their sex assigned at birth and <laughs> to try not to push them into boxes like you know there are girls that like sports too there are you know there are boys that like ballet you know and so i think you know there's I, there's a lot of different pieces of advice that are like rolled up into that answer but i think just being open-minded and not having assumptions yeah no um, that that's great like now now what about like the science or the innovations like have there been significant improvements with like the medical care treatment for transgender people? I think that in general, there's just more access to research now. Um, and it's, it's never going to be like the research, like the, the best research out there, because it's really hard to do research on this. But um, we have more kind of evidence that shows, you know, the importance of not only medical affirmation, but social affirmation. So for example, we know the research that's out there that says that if you just use a person's correct name and pronouns, their depression and risk of suicide decreases. So mm -hmm. just like, and, and they've looked at like three different spaces, at school and the medical space and at home. So mm -hmm. we know the benefits of respecting somebody by, you know, respecting their social affirmation, but we also know the mental health outcomes of um, medical options as well. Oh, interesting. Oh, so, so, so you, you were talking about research, um, and, and you, you, you've done quite a bit of writing on, on sort of transgender, transgender issues. Um, so, so specifically like you wrote, um, how are transgender and gender nonconforming youth affected by the news? Like what, yeah, what did you find? What did you find out there? Yeah, I, um, it's a really good paper and it's, um, you know, it, it was written during, I'm also trying to keep politics out this year, sure, sure. but, and we did this research um, project during the last administration, and we basically just asked youth if they were consuming news that were related to trans individuals and how was that impacting them. You know, because I think it's really easy as adults to think that, like, trans youth maybe don't know about legislation that's out there because they're not on CNN or Fox like, you know, adults <laughs> yeah. are. 
but we also thought, but maybe they are accessing it because we, what we, what they have, but we didn't have is Facebook, social media that makes, mm. you know, news much more consumable as opposed to like having to look at the newspaper, or, like going yeah. turn on, on TV. And, um, and it showed that yeah, youth are definitely seeing, they definitely saw the potential, like excluding trans people from the military, ex- like not allowing them to use the correct bathroom. And so not only were they actively, yes, they were seeing the news, but B, it was definitely contributing to mental health outcomes. And what was also interesting is during the last administration, there were a lot of youth that felt pressure to actually start hormones sooner because they Mm. were worried that under the last administration, because they would take away those, um, that um, access that now they felt like they actually had to transition faster than they normally would. So it actually was pushing people as opposed to giving them space and letting them do it on their own. So it was a lot of really, um, really sad findings, but there were some positive things. You know, a lot of people talked about an improvement of their mental health because they saw better representation in the news. And people talked about Danica Rome in Virginia. And this mm. was done in Seattle, Washington. Yeah. So people were knew Danica Rome's name, you know, like a young, I don't, they're, they're definitely less than 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was also positive things about the news <laughs> and seeing themselves, especially if you don't have any other trans friends. Um, so it was a really good research. Wow. That, that's uh, really, yeah. Cause there was a, there was an article in the New York times recently. Um, actually it wasn't, it was a podcast. The New York times has a podcast called the daily and they were talking about, I listened um, this, to it, yep. this, yeah. And, and, uh-huh. and it, it was really like, I mean, it, it was basically, they're just talking to this family and this, uh, trans youth that is concerned about losing access to their care. And I think it's called Genesis. I can't remember. Oh, it was, right. It's in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so like what, like if, if, if more legislation like that were to come about in you know, some of the States you may expect that it would come out in, um, I mean, it's not like someone that's receiving trans care, gender affirming care can just pick up and move to another state, you know? So like, what are, what are, what are the consequences of that? Oh, the risks, we know the risks because we see in research and we see it in real time. You know, the risk is that the mental health of youth are going to plummet. And that's really the biggest thing about this is we all just care about the safety of our, our, of our patients. And the biggest safety risk is that they're going to complete suicide which we know the research out there, the risk of suicide in trans youth is significantly high because of the stigma that's there. And we also know the protective factors. The protective factors are having supportive parents and having supportive people around you. And so, you know, just anecdotally, when those news stories came out, I would personally see patients who were increasing their thoughts of self-harm because they saw that. Because they know that people are targeting them. And that's just a terrible feeling to have. And that's what we're all worried about. And mm. if you ask like any physician that works in the emergency department, they'll tell you a large percentage of people they see are trans. And we actually do have evidence that show that there was um, like uh, an uptick in basically the phone calls that were uh, made to the a crisis line that's specifically for trans youth. There was an uptick in the last administration. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, I just think that, People just need to hear, like, I loved that daily episode. People just need to hear more from the voices of trans youth. I think people just have really a misconception of of youth. And I tell people all the time, if you came to my clinic and you saw my patients on hormones and puberty blockers or nothing because they don't want anything, they're, like, thriving and doing great because they have the support of people. Like, they, they're they in their school plays. They're doing well in school. 
it's just we as like adults need to be here to support them. <laughs> you know, like that's I, all I, I want for my patients. I know it, it's what it's like. I think the thing that stood out the most to me as a parent was this mother was just like, like I just want to to make sure my kid is okay. You know, <laughs> like and I will I will do whatever it takes. You know, to make sure they're that they're fine. You know, if my if my child tells me that they're sick, I'm gonna take them to the doctor. You know, if my child like gets a cut, I'm gonna give them a band aid. You know, and like so yeah. this is just this is no different than um, you know just a parent wanting to do what's right for their for their kids. In my opinion, right. So, um, uh, let's see. So what tips, um, do you have, um, to, to kind of help families, you know, support children who are, who are kind of navigating, um, these gender issues? I think you touched a little bit, um, on it earlier, but I'd love for you just to kind of, um, you know, give us, uh, give us, give us your, your sales pitch. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest thing is really just to be open and honest with your child and listen to them. And again, thank them for being open to talk about it. But my other biggest thing is really find your allies. It is a really scary time to be a trans person and a loved one of a trans person right now. I mean, especially in certain states like Texas. And, you know, you really want to find your allies, find other families that you can talk to who have, you know, um, kids or family members who are trans. Um, because I think community is such an important part. And I think it's easy if you look at the news to think that, there's so much going against you, but I promise there are people in your corner. Um, and so surround yourself with people in your corner. That's really that good. Would be my yeah. And, uh, and so you work at uh, the children's hospital of Richmond. So just to kind of give you an opportunity to plug, you know, your, your facility, like what, what, yeah. what, what services are available for uh, gender affirming care at, at your, uh, at your hospital? Yeah, our services are really meeting the family where they're at. You know, if, like I said, we don't push hormones, we don't push baby blockers, we're here to just tell you the options. But again, like I talked about before, we're also here to just provide support, you know, like, again, making sure your your family is safe and, you know, the bathroom that you want to use, the sports team, all, you know, all of those types of things that you want to talk about, we're here just as a form of support. Um, and so that's why I can't even pinpoint a specific service. We're here... <laughs> to, you know, just hear your story and just meet you where you're at. Um, we just want all of you to thrive and be healthy and happy. Is that, is that, is, is what I meant to ask earlier was like, is gender affirming care something that's pretty common at most children's hospitals? It's becoming much more common. Yes, it is becoming much, much, much more common. And you know, the, and one of the reasons why is because every medical body in the United States recommends gender affirming care. So AAP, which is like the overriding like group for pediatrics, like they have all the recommendations for like what to, antibiotics to give for a pneumonia. Like they give all the recommendations. And their recommendation is to provide this care for youth because again, we know the, the benefits. And so I, at most children's, um, facilities, you'll find gender affirming care in varying levels, like how big of the program is. Got it. Cause, cause I, you know, I, I can't help but notice. So Virginia is sandwiched between, you know, West Virginia, North Carolina, you know, and, and I'm, I'm wondering if those states have kind of the same resources that we have in Virginia, or are you, do you see a lot of, um, you know, patients from, from these, these sort of like borderline states? There is a lot of variety in terms of state <laughs> to state. And, and again, it's because, unfortunately, this care, this care is very politicized. 
just like in the state of Texas, they had to close a clinic because, you know, the state, there are now protocols in place um, to decrease access to care. So, yes, it does vary state to state. Um, and there are situations where people have to cross state lines. Interesting. Well, well, thank you so much, Dr. Uh-huh. Ann, uh, Ann Pham. Um, yes. she, she is a, a gender affirming care doctor at the Children's Hospital of Richmond um, at VCU. And like I said, I highly, highly endorse that hospital. And now I highly endorse Dr. Pham. So thank you for uh, stopping by and answering our, our questions yes, for us. Thank you so much for listening and giving space to even talk about this topic. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks. And we will see you all um, next week.